The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux, www.freedomainradio.com, Chapter 31, Pomo in Slow-Mo, Engineering Students. Rudy held up his first card, the Engineering Students, a.k.a. the Math Jocks. Engineering Students, ES, are like autistic Neanderthals who have not yet discovered fire but can somehow build bridges. They often come from the world of high school sports, which of course is only a half lunge above the mating rituals of apes. The success of this ritual, of course, leads the art students to bide their time and develop poetry, which they use to seduce girls in university, although they remain susceptible to aerobics envy, which is the bitterness which arises from knowing that jocks always get prettier girls. Engineering students are marked by many things. Chief among them are relentless physicality and bottomless contempt. Now, it would be churlish to expect those who use ideas as tools to build things to have a deep interest in philosophy, but philosophers built capitalism, and those of us with jobs should be grateful to the Enlightenment thinkers, even if we don't understand their theories. We certainly get better dental care than they do. The physicality of engineering students is truly staggering. It is a great natural force. Certain sensitive mystics, since they were probably tormented, or worse, ignored by jocks in high school, may be forgiven for believing that bad engineers get reincarnated as the livers of engineers. Everything about them is primitive. They paint their faces, have the impulse control of Venus flytraps, love learning by rote, and consider creativity a sign of rampant homosexuality. They share many things in common with business students, except that their status is not wealth, but the degree to which they are willing to inflict ritual abuse on their essential organs. They love telling the following stories. Oh, I had to write this exam while hungover. I was so drunk, I broke my arm. My buddy got into a fight, and we just wailed on the guy. I was passed out clutching a beer, but came to when someone tried to take it away. Ah, the camping trip was a disaster because the canoe with the beer tipped over and we had to hike out for more. I jumped into the mosh pit just as everyone cleared. Huh. Sent one home to wait for me, then picked up another chick and brought her home too. I thought, hey, it's me. It'll work out somehow. They wouldn't talk to me, so I asked them, how many of you have boyfriends? None of them did. So I told them it was because they wouldn't talk to guys like me. Every Friday we'd go around the dorm and collect the beer cans. Bottles weren't allowed. People had left outside their rooms to take back, and from them we bought more beer. Stanley Kowalski fascinated the angry tulip, Tennessee Williams. Engineering students fascinate art students in the same way. Engineering students are unafraid of women, act instantly, and have the capacity for great blunt cruelty, which is quite different from the slow-drip verbal poison of the art students. They have the blind, tidal integrity of massive animals, are quick to anger, but forgive grudges over drinks, and are loyal to a degree that art students cannot even imagine. Art students turn on each other like wounded jackals. Intense friendships rarely last a year because everyone is so meddling and, and insecure and viciously competitive. Engineering students, on the other hand, 
do not get involved in their friends' relationships except to comment that they are whipped if they have to leave the bar before closing. They have a stronger respect for the immutability of human nature and are willing to let their friends' mistakes run their course. They will be there for a friend when he crashes, but will do nothing to accelerate that. In short, they have all of the virtues as well as the vices of primitive tribalism. They are unafraid of approaching women, but become over-compliant in relationships. Again, unlike art students who are hesitant to approach women, but are quite stingy in relationships with them. They act entirely on instinct, which means that the trajectories of their lives, for good or ill, are remarkably consistent. They are Lear to the art student's Nixon. Because they have no real conception of what they're missing, they spare little thought for the dickless art students, considering them insecure and irritating parasites. They're correct, of course, except that they underestimate the damage that art students can do to society in the long run, and also the danger that the self-absorption of their writings can do to marriages of a very male man when his wife reaches fretful middle age. Another virtue of the engineering students is that they do not believe that they are special or, or owed anything, and so are infinitely more charitable than the art students. Those who live lives of instinct are rarely narcissistic because they live by the spine. They have some sense of empathy. True narcissism requires an intellectual. Engineering students will do ridiculous things for charity. Whether the charity is a reason or an excuse is another question. And the unfortunate in society owe a great deal to the coconuts these apes break and share. Say what you like about engineers, there is about as much chance of catching an art student doing charitable work as finding an engineer taking yoga. Engineers view health maintenance as a form of cowardice. It is as if being born to be warriors, the only foes they can now invent are high-fat foods, red meat, and social alcoholism. Basically, engineers believe that any of the following will cause their penises to fall off. Uh, vegetables, uh, Caesar soup being a possible exception, as long as the lettuce swims in a thick soup of dressing and there's enough powdered pig to cover Arkansas. Uh, light beer. Uh, stretching before or after exercise. Well, stretching at all. Actually, engineers have been known to experience near-fatal cramps reaching backwards for a beer from a beanbag. Foreign films. Well... Train spotting is okay, though. Jazz, uh, Steely Dan being the Border Patrol. Uh, solitary exercise, uh, any music produced after they were about uh, 24. Any music where the beat changes during the song. Actually, uh, any music with decipherable lyrics. Uh, speakers, less than the size of the slabs at Stonehenge. A television less than a quarter of the side of the wall it sits against. The snacks that are not vacuum sealed. Club soda, just club soda, actually anything carbonated without either a lot of sugar or alcohol, uh, sleeping with a fat woman while sober, Rudy grinned into the webcam. The final paradigm, the truth of the relationship between engineering and art students is this. Engineering students build the things our society uses, and, and art students destroy the foundations of that society. Chapter 32. The children discussed their notes. Alice, Stephen, and Sarah sat down to compare notes. They, they sat in the empty playground. The, the June day was wonderfully warm. 
Stephen read from his notes first. I was hoping to get these more organized, but, he said, ruffling through his papers, I had some good, some good questions. Should I go first? asked Alice, a little impatiently. No, no, here. Um, oh, oh, okay, here's a good one. Uh, prejudice. Uh, r racism. Nice, said Sarah. So, so I say to Dad, uh, uh, Dad, what's racism? And he said, being prejudiced against another race. But are Jews a race or a religion? asked Sarah. Uh, good question, said Stephen, making a note. So I say, what's a prejudice? He says, a belief without evidence. So I say, what's evidence? He says, it's facts, uh, it's facts which support your belief. I say, um, so, uh, he flipped a page. I say, what information is that? He said, there's no evidence that, what's an AC? African-Canadian, suggested Sarah. Yeah. He says, he says, there's no evidence that they're inferior, so I say, you should never believe anything without evidence. He said, some people believe things from their heart rather than their head. Yeah, I've heard that too, said Sarah. Uh, so I said, uh, 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 what do people believe from the heart? And he says, uh, God is one, or art. So I asked him what the difference was. Don't people believe bad things from the heart, like racism? He said that, oh man, I have a page missing. Flip it, said Alice. I already did. The next one. Oh, oh yeah, said Stephen, peering. So he said that a good belief from the heart makes you a better person, but a prejudice makes you worse. And I said, that doesn't make sense. You can't say that a good belief is a belief which makes you good. And then? Then, then he got a headache. He held up the page and sniffed it. Hmm, and I had some jam. Hmm, said Sarah. Now, what have you got? asked Stephen. Well, nothing so high and mighty, replied Sarah, so try and stay awake. I listened to my parents one night. Alice frowned. You're spying too? I have to, cried Sarah. I can't get anything from them. They just talk and talk. I had to wait till last weekend at the cottage. Where were we on spying? Okay, right? I don't know, sniffed Alice. I don't like spying. Why not? asked Stephen. It's like... Eh, it's like cheating. Why? She's not lying. But they don't know she's listening. But a good person should be able to be listened to any time, said Sarah, don't you think? Yeah, a good person also goes to the toilet, but we shouldn't... Stephen grinned at Sarah. What if they'd started kissing? Sarah punched him in the arm. Ew! Look, I won't do it again, okay? But this counts. I think it's important. Okay, said Alice. Sarah pulled out her own notebook. This is what I got. My dad has had five, five businesses, I think, and he didn't know that the last one was failing until just before... It went under, and, and he keeps taking investors' money even after he knew it was going to fail. Now, Terry is his tech guy, and Terry doesn't make any business decisions or know anything about the money stuff. Uh, my, dad, my, my dad also said he doesn't know anything about software, and they fought. Okay, said Stephen slowly. That's, that's rich. That's very rich. What do you think? Who fought? asked Alice. Sarah frowned, blinked suddenly, then burst into tears. Oh, it's okay, sunshine. Alice rubbed Sarah's lower back in small circles, just how she liked it. It's okay, sweetie. It's just... Sarah sobbed suddenly. What if my dad is a cheater? He might not be, said Alice. Over Sarah's blonde curls, she and Stephen exchanged glances. But if he is, said Stephen, then you you have to know, even 
Well, it's going to hurt, but not as much as if you don't know and listen to him about how to live. Sarah took a deep, shuddering breath. I mean, he doesn't seem to know anything, and he gets money just for asking for money, and they fought really badly. Your mom and dad? asked Alice, continuing her rubbing motion. They were really mean, moaned Sarah. Her sobs increased. And, and what if my dad's employees are paying for my writing lessons? Huh, said Stephen. We all have hobbies. What if, what if it's just wrong to... Everything is not right. Where we live, what we wear. Oh, Sarah doubled over, racked with tears. Stephen and Alice held her, murmuring soft words. Don't worry, don't worry, said Stephen. It'll be our turn soon. Eventually, Sarah calmed down. She, she sat up and rubbed her heels with the back of her hand. <sighs> she sighed. I don't, um, I don't like this anymore. It's too hard. It is hard, said Stephen. It is, but you are very brave. We can help each other. Look at your face, said Alice, touching Sarah's cheek with a tissue. It's a good thing we gave up on makeup. Sarah smiled and took her friend's hand. I'm sorry. I don't really want to give up now. It is hard, but we have to change. There's something, there's something cold in here. She touched her heart. The other two just looked at her. I can't like it if it's wrong, she continued. I can't take stuff if it's bad. What stuff? asked Alice. What they do, what they give me. Your parents? I know, she said, another tear slipping down her round cheek. I know, but I can't believe it. it's wrong. I won't take any of it. A slight chill wavered through Stephen's heart. What do you mean? Sarah raised her head. Her eyes were red. Her jaw was set. Until we know for sure, we can't take anything from them. Well, it was, it was a hard debate, but they resolved it finally, just as the sun was slipping through the monkey bars like an imprisoned angel. As night fell, they decided to accept the following. Private school, clothing, nice was okay, but nothing fashionable or expensive food shelter. The use of what was already there, Stephen drove this position out of love for his computer, a family trip since they were too young to be left at home alone, any hobbies which required no more spending was okay, Alice played hockey, they decided to give up the following, uh, expensive school trips, summer camps, programs, music and sports lessons, extracurricular activities which cost money, Unnecessary rides they would use the bus except late at night, parties, and allowances. They argued for a long time about the best way to broach this with their families. They didn't want to just stop accepting things without being open, but recoiled from the idea of saying that they were on strike for moral reasons. How on earth can we tell them? asked Stephen. Don't know, murmured Sarah. Don't know. Alice narrowed her eyes. We'll, uh... We'll tell them. We've taken a vow of poverty. Stephen shook his head. Mm, that'll bring the school psych, he said. We'll get meds instead of puberty. They thought some more. It has to be something they can be proud of, said Sarah. Something they think we'll grow out of, said Alice. Oh, charity, cried Stephen, pounding a fist into a palm. Like, like an after-school special. 
Okay, said Alice. We say, Mom, Dad, I've decided to use less money and would like the family to give to charity instead. Not bad, said Sarah. They'd be sort of touched, I think. And the best thing, said Stephen, is that they'll think it'll blow over. Alice smiled, and they'll be able to say, Oh, my children have such good hearts. No, said Sarah, suddenly grave. It's going to be really harsh. What can they do? asked Alice. They know we hang, said Stephen. They could separate us. Alice shrugged. We go to the same school. We have phones in a room. Email. I am. Stephen smiled. See, everything they could take away, we want to give up anyway. No, said Sarah. Not that kind of pressure. They'll be irritated and, and disappointed. Oh, they'll sit down and have long talks with us. They'll be hurt. They'll pout, smiled Alice. Yes, replied Sarah seriously. They will. They'll be scared. They'll use whatever they can. Stephen suddenly shuddered. Do you think they... Do you think they care so little about us? Sarah just looked at him. Chapter 33. The Boy Band's Promotional Material. Justin, JT, favorite color, royal blue. Favorite band, do you have to ask? Favorite movie, Scary Movie 4. What Justin looks for in a girl? Justin likes girls who are down to earth. He loves a sense of humor, a great smile, and a confident attitude. And if you know the whole theme song to different strokes, that's good for some serious bonus points. Justin's dream date, skating, because he can pretend to be bad at it, actually he's quite good, and fall into the girl's arms. Justin's status, single and looking. Todd. Toddy. Favorite color, emerald green. Favorite band, NSYNC. Favorite movie, I still know what you did last summer. What Todd looks for in a girl. For Todd, the question is simple. Does she get along with his mom? Anyone who can charm his mom is all right in his books. Todd's dream date. Burgers and shakes at Chuck E. Cheese because she might as well get used to his playful side early on. But look out, girls. He has a habit of picking from other people's plates. Todd's status. Recently broken up with a girl because she wanted all her fries for herself. Gerald. Jeez. Favorite color. Tartan. Favorite band. BSB, of course. Favorite movie. My own home movies. What Gerald looks for in a girl. He doesn't look anywhere but into the eyes of the girl of his dreams. Gerald's dream date. He's never really been on a date, so how would he know? Gerald's status. Still dating his junior high school sweetheart. Chris, Papa Man. Favorite color, white, because it has every color. Favorite band, my local symphony. Favorite movie, a room with a view. What Chris looks for in a girl. Three words, conversation, conversation, and more conversation. Chris's dream date. Any place where the music is not too loud to talk all night. Chris's status, single, and willing to discuss it. Ian, iMac. Favorite color, black. Favorite band, the retro but still relevant Erasure. Favorite movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space. What Ian looks for in a girl? Someone not too tall who can help me open my jam jars. Ian's dream date, miniature golf because it makes me look taller. Ian's status, looking high and low. The boys loitered around in Al's office, staring at the pages. Al smiled. Al smiled. I imagine that this is all cheesy enough for you guys. Now I want to talk about the video. But we don't have a song, said Gerald. Justin snorted. 
Shut up, jeez. Todd laughed. JT, let's have a video where you get shot as the cliffhanger, and in the next video, we find out who did it. I did it, of course, replied Justin. But who cares? None of the new blues we're after would get the Dallas reference, goat boy. New blues? asked Al. Those just past puberty. I don't get it. Ian smiled. That blue liquid in tampon commercials. Yeah, said Chris. You got that coming out of you. Your biggest problem is whether your panty line shows. Al grunted. Well, let's just keep that little gem amongst ourselves, shall we? Though it would be a good name for a band, said Gerald. New blues. I've got some suggestions, said Al, picking up a piece of paper. No, said Justin. I'm going to play my alpha male card and give the name. What? He turned and wrote on the whiteboard, Boy Band. There's a little umlaut, the two little dots over the O. There was a pause. Boy Band? Yes, but note the umlaut over the O. There was a pause. Not bad, said Chris. Snags the ironic as well. Fairly amusing, said Todd. I like the umlaut touch. Gives us an indefinite edge. Ian smiled. It says, sure, we're a boy band, but we could beat up other boy bands. Chris cocked his head at Justin. Kind of literal, dude. Does that mean you're going to change your name to lead singer with an accent aigu, added Todd? And Al, you could be chiseling parasite manager. Can I be untalented backup singer destined for rehab, asked Ian. No, you get anorexia, remember, said Justin. All right, my wee herd of black sheep, said Al. The video, do you want to hear my idea? Sure, lay it on a CPM. Al frowned, then told the following tale, his hands tracing it in the air. So you all work at a car wash, and you're bored, and then this girl drives up in a red convertible, and you can fight over cleaning her car, and she's laughing and talking on her cell, and then you see the number on her phone, and Justin calls her, and she, she switches to him, and he's, he's singing the chorus, and then you all drape yourselves over the car and sing to her and spray water or whatever, and at the end of the song, you blink, and you're all cleaning some ugly old broad's car, and it's all been a dream, and then the girl's car comes up, and you all stare at each other, then break into a run to clean her car, and that's it. That's just... It. Very middle-aged, scowled Justin, sucking his teeth. A red sports car? Why middle-aged men want to sit in a clitoris with a retractable hood is beyond me. Gerald sat forward. No, the, the car wash could work. How about this? At the end, we drive off with her for a picnic in the desert, and when we open up the trunk, there are cut-up bits of other car wash boys. Chris jumped up and down in his chair. No, no, okay, okay, okay. The car wash turns out to be uh, laundry in jail, and at the end, a big guy comes in looking for hot prison bitch love, and we all pee ourselves and scream, No, Bubba, no! There was a short pause. Oh. Yeah, that would, that would be different, admitted Todd. Chris giggled. <laughs> and, and now, the new video from Boy Bitch Band. Let's get serious, said Justin. We're looking to snag the preteens, so we need a video which contains the perfect metaphor for new blue lust, something sanitized and holy and safe and cute. Choir boy band, cried Gerald. Hot church bitch love, shouted Chris. Stop, stop, we've got the name, barked Al. Let's hear Justin's ideas for the video. Okay, mused Justin. Something very delicate, very thin, very false about a group who believes in something very strongly, yet would never impose it except through through good example. A group which which pities bad people, a group who saints 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 of the modern world, the sainted of
Huh. He squinted, shaking his head. Uh, sorry, this part of my brain doesn't work too well. Al nodded slowly. No, no, you're doing great. Go on. Justin frowned. Uh, okay. Uh, animal rescuers? No, it's too obvious. Uh, something for all of us. Peace Corps? No, too druggy. We're intelligent, and if we do it right, not, not too goody-goody. Nothing, nothing in, nothing in uniform. Greens, angels, too arrogant. Wait, wait, assistant angels, prankster angels, angels trying to earn their wings. Nice, nice, not too supernatural. A lot of room for tacky humor, bad acting, amateur double takes. What's the setup? Asked Todd. Let's see. That that okay. Um, okay. Okay. The test for heaven is after you die, and you have to do the most good to get in. No, no, wait. We're already in, and and we and and we want to become head angels because we're ambitious. So we compete. Yeah, that's it. We compete with another group of angels who are always beating us, and finally we give up and accept that we'll never be the head angels. And of course. That is when we are promoted to head angels, because head angels have to renounce ambition. At the end of the video, our competitors are running past us to beat us in doing good, but we can just snap our fingers and do good from a distance, because we're not competing with them anymore. There was a pause. No one could tell whether he was serious or not. Can we work a girl in somehow? asked Al. I, I have someone in mind. Why would we pimp for you? asked Justin. All right. Do some groupies, then we'll talk. Would it be too self-referential to have the angel save a pretty girl from a sleazy agent? Asked Todd. Hey, there's no such thing as too self-referential, said Chris. I don't care, said Al. Could work out. I think the idea's great, but I'm funding the damn thing, so let's keep the cost down. No helicopters ca crashing into the Golden Gate. What about the pearly gates? Ooh, where Arnold Schwarzenegger has been sent to sub for St. Peter's because he talked back to his captain. You girly boys want to get into heaven, you have to get by me first. One of the few angels allowed to smoke stogies. Ooh, and we'll have to scale the gates with a knotted rope like marines in training, with angels pecking at us, and the metal is electrified. Boys, boys, cried Al. Let me ask you, when you go off in these MTV schizoid ramblings, do we just let you run? Will you tie yourselves out or never come back? Justin shrugged. What's back? Never mind. Just take some lunch. Go, go somewhere bright and caffeinated work on Justin's idea. I'll start looking at a cost. Can we shoot this weekend? Lord, on a stick, man, said Chris. We need a song, right? Al nodded. Uh, well, we'll come up with the song after we get the images. It'll fit. I have an instinct for this stuff. <laughs> Style before substance, laughed Justin, grabbing his jacket and standing up. Well, we've never exactly objected before, right? Chapter 34. The Parents Regroup. Now, the lunch was the first time the wives had all met. It took some planning, and had to be postponed twice, but eventually they all had coffee at Angela's house. It was just the women and Alder who was off for the summer. They all sat in a bright Ikea-style breakfast nook with yellow cushions and lots of blonde wood. Now, said Angela after serving everyone, I guess we all know each other individually, but this is the first time we've all sat down together. No, said Greta, adjusting her scarf and gazing around the room. There was the Sanderson's barbecue. Yes, that's right, but alone. This is a first, Joanne nodded. So, it would seem that we have a little rebellion on our hands. Greta laughed, pushing down a scarf and taking a sip of coffee. It would appear so. 
Do Alice and Stephen carry those little notebooks too? Asked Angela. The others nodded. I, I feel like I'm being cornered on 2020. Makes you think twice before opening up your mouth, said Greta. And do we know what has put their precious little backs up? Asked Angela. Ah, oh, that phase of why is the sky blue was one thing, said Joanne. This is quite something else. We get so wrapped up in unanswerable questions that even my husband has nothing to say. For a husband, that's quite a feat, said Angela. Having nothing to say never stopped mine, laughed Greta. Alda raised her head. Um, husband present? Angela smiled, then held up a plate of maple cookies. Neither of the other two women took any, of course. Alda did, a handful. Joanne flinched, knowing that they were all about to be treated to the sight of Alda's desire to spray both his crumbs and his wisdom simultaneously. Angela put the plate down. I can't get squat out of Sarah about why she's gone all Dalai Lama. She just says it's something she wants to do. Greta groaned. Oh, if I get another phone call asking why Alice doesn't do this or that activity anymore, I think I'll go mad. Alda smiled. They're going through a phase in their development where they're obsessed with uh, ethics. It lays the foundation for teenage absolutism. They're preparing to become monumentally disappointed in their parents. Huh, scowled Angela. I don't know about that. I do know that there's something going on that's not being talked about. They're playing something close to their chests. The point being, said Greta, what are we going to do about it? If Alda is right, said Joanne, this isn't going to blow over for some time. Years, said Alda. But where did it come from? demanded Angela. What's going on in those notebooks? I'm not into prying, but I'd give my eye teeth to read Sarah's. Alda's responding comment was perhaps, just get a hold of it while they're sleeping, or just set a stoat on them while they're weeping. Joanne noted that one of his crumbs had managed to reach Angela's coffee, and could not help but wonder if she had noticed being married to Alda was like having Tourette's by proxy. "'What is the point of all these questions?' asked Greta. "'My dinner table is like an interrogation room. Why did you do this? What about that? How does this fit with that? It drives me mad. We're not saints. We don't have the answers.' Alda lifted a cloth to his face. Please, God, thought Joanne, let it be a napkin and not the tablecloth again. The point, he murmured, is not to give them answers. Angela and Greta turned on him, rather irritated, but willing to give him a minute or two. I face this all the time, said Alda, spreading his hands. First-year students, realists, randroids, and little philosophy is a dangerous thing. Go on, frowned Joanne. Don't mime wiping your mouth. He hates that. Her husband said, You have to break down their certainties, ask them questions. So far, they're the ones driving the debate. Debate, muttered Angela, but leaned forward anyway. So, we, what, cross-examine them back? asked Greta, chewing on a corner of her scarf. Well, with all due respect, said Alzor, taking another handful of cookies and almost knocking over a little jug of cream, I think I should be the one to do it. It's my training, after all. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't that all be a little academic? asked Angela skeptically. I can simplify it. The, the point is to show them that what they think of as black and white is a lot more complicated. At the moment, we can't answer the questions. We need to ask them questions they can't answer, and everything will fall into place. He jammed a cookie into his mouth. Uh-huh, said Angela, tapping her teeth with a fingernail. None of the women wanted to ask him another question, at least until his cookie had been partially ingested. Greta spoke first. If that's such a great idea, why hasn't it worked with Stephen? Well, there's no point doing just one, said Alder. That's why I'm here. 
If I talk to Stephen, give him some perspective, all he does is go running back to Sarah and Alice, and they reinforce his absolutism, and the problem starts again. Same for both of you. We have to get them all together. Uh-huh, said Angela, narrowing her eyes. With all due respect, what if it doesn't work? Well, that would be bad, said Alder. Why, asked Greta. I mean, what have we got to lose? Well, said Joanne, Alder has authority because of his position. He, he teaches philosophy, so if he fails... The kids will really think they're onto something. Oh, grimaced Greta, glancing at Alder nervously. Right. Alder smiled. I'm certainly open to other suggestions, but, but the purpose of a teacher is to open the minds of his students. I am not unfamiliar with the best ways to create productive doubt. Bit of a heavy gun for a small problem, said Angela. It could peter out on its own, Greta scowled. Yeah, but until then, I mean, could be years. Joanne took a sip of wine. My husband's been a teacher for, what, five years now? Eight, if you include being a TA. Angela shook her head. I don't know. Alda smiled. Angela, please. I can handle 219-year-olds. I think I can just about manage three year olds Let me try. Angela looked at him doubtfully. Joanne smiled encouragingly. Okay, said Angela finally, but if anything goes wrong, you're on the hook for all the psych bills. Alda grinned comfortably, his crumbs and lips spreading wide. He made an okay gesture, and Joanne closed her eyes. Chapter 35 Alder Instructs the Children Alda sat in his office with the children, Sarah, Alice, and Stephen. There was no need to hold the meeting there, since it was August and the place was almost deserted, but Alda liked the implicit authority in his bookshelves. He smiled genially and gestured for them to sit down. He had purposely found the largest possible chairs. Let's see if they can beat me when their feet can't even touch the ground. Now, your parents have asked me to talk to you because you're having problems at home. I'm not a psychologist, of course, but I'm trained in ethical issues, so I hope I can help you understand your parents' positions. They stared at him, openly curious. Their curiosity encouraged him. Their staring did not. So, why don't we all talk about what is going on here? A Alice, would you like to go first? Alice nodded. How would you like me to start? Well, why don't you tell me why you've gone on strike? She stared at him. Don't worry, he said. This will all be confidential, a secret. I won't be telling anyone. Alice glanced at the other two children, then turned back to Alder and narrowed her eyes. My father is in the music business, and I think he's taking advantage of his acts. She looked down and opened her notebook. "'What's in those, anyway?' asked Alder, leaning forward. Stephen coughed. <clears throat> um, "'We've been trying to take notes of conversations we've had with our parents. We've, we've been trying to understand their, their, their well, your uh, way of life, you know.' "'All right,' Alder nodded, smiling. "'Go on.' Alice turned a page. "'Well, my father says that he has no ideas which bands will be successful or not, but he still takes money for representing them.' I'm sure that comment was taken out of context. Or, or is it possible that he was being modest? No, no, he really meant it. And have you tried to talking about this with him? Yes, but he wouldn't let me take notes. I had to write it down after. And what happened? He told me that uh, he worked very hard, and that a lot of people had dreams, and he helped some of them come true, and that a family was very expensive... I said I'd heard him telling Mom he didn't know which bands would be famous, and he said that I must have misunderstood. I asked him if he did know, and he said that it was complicated, but he did have an, an instinct. 
Alex glanced down at her notebook. I said, um, how many bands have you managed? And he said, quite a lot. And I said, how many became famous? And he said, not many, but then not many bands do become famous. I said, did he tell bands that they were very unlikely to succeed when they started? Or did he tell them they would become famous? He said, he told them that it was risky. I said, I would check with my brother Ian, who was in a band that my dad runs. Then my dad said that he needed people to be confident, that confidence really helped them make it. And I said, does that mean you say it's not risky to make them confident? And then he got mad and sent me to my room. Alda nodded. I see. So can you tell me in one sentence why you've gone on strike? Alice took a deep breath. I came here because of Stephen. I don't know you very well. So you want to know why you should tell me? Yes. Well, if we talk, no matter what happens, your parents will accept your decisions, your restrictions, the stuff you don't want to do or, or, or take. It's okay, Alice, said Stephen. I think it's a good idea. Dad is supposed to know. He can help. Alice stared at Stephen and then Alder for a long time, then resumed speaking as if she had never stopped. I think that my dad takes money from people by telling them they will make tons of money, but he doesn't know if they will or not, and doesn't tell them that he doesn't know. Alder paused. He clasped his hands together, flicking his forefingers against each other. But they might become famous, right? These acts? Sure, but people who sell lottery tickets don't tell you you're going to become rich. But people who buy lottery tickets know that the odds are low. But the boys in the band my dad has now are like 16 years old. He also deals with other kids. But their parents know the truth. I don't know that they do. They come to my dad as an expert who knows music. I don't think he tells them the truth. All right, said Alder. He seemed hypnotized by his flicking fingers, but tore his eyes away. I don't know enough about the music business to tell, but I can tell you this. Hopes and dreams are very important to people. Without dreams, we're just, you know, flesh and blood, mammals. There was a pause. Stephen frowned. Uh-huh. Can Sarah tell her side? Of course, smiled Alder. Go ahead. Well, said Sarah... My dad runs businesses, and, and most of them fail. He doesn't tell the truth about his failures to his investors, and he runs businesses he knows nothing about, and he works his employees to death, and always comes up to the cottage. So your complaint is very similar to Alice's. Yes. Yes? Yes. And you, Stephen, said Alder, can you tell me what problem you have with your mother and me? Um... I'd rather say at the end, said Stephen. All right, said Alder, looking around. Now, does anyone want a drink or a snack? All three children shook their heads. Alder smiled, settling back in his plush chair. Now, who knows what I mean when I say compromise? All of you? Stephen, why don't you tell me what it means? It's like if you want the toy another kid has, you agree to share... All right, that's good. Now, sharing means not taking everything for yourself, interrupted Alice. Alda smiled. Good, good. Now, when you're playing with a toy and someone else wants to play with it as well, what do you do? You try to play together, said Sarah, or you take turns. Quite right, said Alda. Now, it takes a long time to learn that because we all want to believe that we are right. You know, just plain right, without any ifs, ands, or buts. But you learn, and it takes a long time, 
that it's important to look at yourself and say, perhaps I'm not right all the time. Perhaps other people's needs and feelings are as important as my own and have to be respected. So how does that fit with my dad? asked Alice, leaning forward. Well, Alice, I am sure your father believes that he is helping people, but he is also worried that if he tells them how difficult it's going to be, they will not pursue their dreams. He's trying to balance risk and encouragement. How? Well, if you made a mistake on your math homework and I said to you, Alice, you are terrible at math, you are never going to be any good at it, that wouldn't be very fair, would it? She thought about this. But she's not telling people they have less of a chance, but more, much more. Encouragement is a good thing. The chance of becoming a professor is very small, but I managed to do it. If someone had told me the odds, I might have given up. And then where would I be? So you believe that lying can be a good thing? Asked Sarah. No, it's not like that. It's like... Okay, if I say honestly, Sarah, you are so cool... And then I say sarcastically, Oh, Sarah, you are so cool. They both have different meanings, right? Sure. So it's not that lying or telling the truth are always good or bad, but rather it's in the context and intention. <laughs> Sorry, that was adult babble. If your father says to a band, You are going to make it, and he genuinely believes that saying it will help the band make it, is it really a lie? Or if you do a drawing... And it's maybe not the best drawing in the world, but your mother says it's beautiful and puts it on the fridge. Is she lying? But what if she says it's the best drawing in the world when it's not? Is she lying? Alda nodded, leaning forward. Let's say she was lying. But because you believe her, you grow up to be a great artist, one who maybe does produce the best drawing in the world. Then is what she did actually bad? Stephen frowned. So, lying is good if it makes something true. No, no. It's, it's not so much good as it is... What I'm trying to explain is that your parents have really good reasons for what they do. And perhaps there is a certain amount of um, delusion, useful fibbing, in the achievement of everything worthwhile. Sometimes we have to believe in ourselves before we have any reason to. Some people paint pictures for 20 years before being shown. They have to tell themselves something to keep going because there's so much rejection. So, Dad, said Stephen, if you find out someone has cheated on a test, what do you do? Well, it's against the rules to cheat. Why? Because it's unfair to those who have studied. What if everyone cheats? It wouldn't be unfair then. If everyone is cheating, you're not a very good teacher then, are you? What if a person who cheats becomes a great professor? Is it okay then? That is a very theoretical... That, that's not something that happens in the real world. Why not? It just doesn't. My point is that you just shouldn't judge your parents so harshly. But what if they're doing something wrong? It's very hard to understand adults when you're a child. So... There are different rules for adults than kids. Is it okay if we lie? I wouldn't say that. I, I, I would say that the problems of an adult are much more complicated than the problems of a child. And when things get more complicated, you, you have to be more flexible. Stephen thought about this for a moment. So when things become more difficult, you need fewer rules. Not, not quite, sighed Aldera. 
It's just that when you're a kid, you have to please your parents and your teachers and maybe your friends. When you're an adult, you have to please everyone. And it it just gets a lot harder to be so black and white about things. You know, like this good, this bad. So lying is okay if you please people. What? No, no, I never said that, cried Alder, waving his hands and sitting up quickly. There was a pause. Why don't we try this, said Alice. Why don't you tell us why lying is wrong? Alder looked at her for a moment. Don't you think that lying is wrong? I do, but it's really confusing. Maybe if we knew why lying was wrong, we'd know if it was ever okay to lie. This is all so toadstool Socratic, muttered Alder. All right. Lying is bad because it confuses the other person. What's wrong with confusing people, asked Stephen. People used to believe that the world was flat, right? And then when someone said it was round, people were confused. Well, let's say that lying is wrong because it makes someone believe something is true, which is not true. So then it's always bad. No, not if it could be true and lying makes it possible. So it's okay to lie to someone if it encourages them. Only if they act on that encouragement. Do they have to succeed? No, to try is enough. So how can you tell? What do you mean? Well, said Stephen, someone could encourage me to be a, a, a girl or, or, or an elephant or, or a spaceship, and I could waste a lot of time trying. But no one would ever tell you that. Okay, said Alice, but the person telling you that you can really do something doesn't know if you really can. My dad doesn't. But sometimes you can if someone says you can, said Alder. Then more of my dad's bands would be successful. That could be bad luck. Forget that, Allie, said Stephen. We're drifting. Dad, okay, let's say that lying is okay if it's, you know, encouraging and, and, and realistic and results in success. Then you're saying that the, the end justifies the means. Yes, yes I am. But, but, but in a very limited place. Way. It's like stealing. Stealing is bad, but if you're about to die of hunger, then you can take some bread. You see, every rule has some sort of exception. Remember remember how much fun it was to believe in Santa Claus. And how do you know them? What? The exceptions to the rules. Now that's a matter of experience and, and well, taste, at least to some degree. Like, okay, think of this. Some killer comes into your house and says, I want to kill your mom. Where is she? You know where she is, but you wouldn't tell the truth, right? But some things are certain. Rules without any breaks? Certain? said Alder. Certain? Well, I'm fairly certain I'm sitting here talking to you three ethical musketeers. I mean about good and bad. Can you say that there is something which is always bad without exception? Alder thought. For a long time. No. No, everything I can think of has exceptions. Look at it like this. Okay. Imagine that you're playing Monopoly. Sometimes you want to buy properties. Sometimes you want to sell them so you can buy hotels or stay out of debt. You can't say about Monopoly, always buy properties. It, it, it depends on the situation. But, Dad, said Stephen, you do that to win the game. That, that, that's how you know what the right thing to do is. Isn't there some big rule that makes the, the, the differences make sense? Not that I know of. Many, many, many people have tried to come up with them. What about going up to someone you don't know anything about and shooting him? asked Alice. 
That's only legal in America, joked Alder. Really? You see, <laughs> there's, a, there's always a reason why people do things. And if you understand that reason, you're a lot better off. You know, kinder. Like the person could be crazy. What if they're not? Well, someone who goes and shoots someone they don't even know is not really sane now, are they? What if they're sane but do it anyway? Well, maybe that person reminds them of someone who really hurt them. Maybe they've been starved, whipped, unemployed for years. Maybe they've become addicted to some drug that makes them act bad. Maybe it's a man of color and they hate them. So they'd never do it just because they were bad. Everyone has a reason for what they do, said Alder. So there is no bad. There are bad actions, said Alder, like if you tell a lie, then you have told a lie. You're not a liar. Who you are is different from what you do. What if you only tell lies? Then you're not well in the head. There's a term for it, pathological. So there's good and there's not well, right? Yes, that is my belief. But it's not true? Alda frowned. True like how? True like, like that the world is round? Alda smiled suddenly. But the world is not round. What? The world is not round. Round is like math. It's perfect, but it doesn't exist. Alda got up and drew a circle on the chalkboard. That's round, right? Sort of. Pretend I'm better at drawing circles. But if you look at it up close, it's not perfect. The chalk bleeds. There are spots at the end. The world is sort of round. There is the Mariana Trench, about seven miles deep, and the Himalayas, about five miles high. It's not round, but we use the word because it's easier on the tongue than saying roundish all the time. So the idea that there is good and ill is not quite true, but it's, it's true-ish. What part of it is false? demanded Alice. I'm sorry? Well, the circle is round, and the world is round, except for mountains and stuff. So the mountains and stuff is the part that is not round. So what part of good versus sick is not true. That's circumstantial. Sorry, it depends on what's happening at the time. So if a policeman shoots a black man because he doesn't like black men, sometimes that's wrong and sometimes that's okay? Alder paused. The, the problem is that the policeman will never say, I shot the black man because I don't like black men. You have to find out why, and, and that's very hard. Let's say that he uses the N-word, and you find a clan card in his wallet, and, and, and the black man was doing nothing, and there's a letter saying he was going to shoot a black man that day. All right, let's really stack the cards, smiled Alder uneasily. So is that always bad? I mean, ill. Yes, I, I can't think of anything which would make that okay. So what do you do with the policeman? You put him in jail. Why? He's not a bad man. Alder paused. You put him in jail to make other people not shoot black men. Stephen frowned. So you make an example of him? Yes. Yes. So other people might choose not to shoot a black man if they see the policeman is going to jail? Yes. So doesn't that mean that... Stephen paused. Go on. That, that other people can choose not to shoot black men? 
Well, if there are bad consequences, if they could go to jail, then yes, they might not. So it's not really the same as being ill. Not like if you have the flu, said Alice. How so? Well, if you have the flu, you can't choose to feel sick or not, you just are. But if shooting someone is like being sick, but you can choose to shoot someone or not, then it's not really like being sick. And why would someone go to jail for being sick? You don't send them to jail for having the flu, said Sarah. But people have to know that they have options, said Alder heatedly. You can't blame a doctor a hundred years ago for not using antibiotics because they weren't invented. You have to teach people that they have a choice and that they don't have to hate black people. So you send the policeman to school, asked Alice. No, you have to punish him. But you, you aim to teach the next generation that they don't have to hate black people. So hating black people, said Stephen, is always wrong. Well, someone might, might have reasons. If, if, if someone you loved was killed in rioting in South Africa, or, or at the end of white rule you lost your property, so it's okay for them to hate blacks. No, I'm just saying why they might. So it's wrong for them to hate blacks. Mostly, yes. So when is it okay? I don't know, but it might be possible. See, see, in, in science, everything, every belief, every idea, is sort of just for now. Like, like Newton said, an apple falls this way, and everyone said, okay, so it does. Then, then Einstein came along and said, no, under certain conditions, an apple falls this way instead. And everyone said, okay, so it does. So because everything we know is always dependent on what we can measure or, or what knowledge we have, or even the instruments we have. We have to say everything we know is just for now. See, that's what I mean by true-ish. Racism is not good. That is true-ish. But it's possible to imagine that there might be a condition under which it could be right. Like if we discover a race on Mars where everyone always hated us, then we would be justified in judging that race as a whole. That would be racism, but it wouldn't be wrong. There was a pause here. No, I don't see that, Dad, said Stephen. I think both of those are wrong. Why? Well, the Martian race thing. It's not racist to say that blacks are darker than whites, is it? They aren't always. There are a lot of gray areas. Sure, but in general. Yes, blacks are darker than whites. So, if these Martians always hate us, we're not being racist. Racism is saying a person has a a belief or something about them which they don't have. If every Martian hates us, we aren't being racist by judging them. It's like saying it's racist to judge every Martian that's coming from Mars. All right, what was the other one? This Newton thing, he said. Alice is better at science. We, we, we talked about this the other day. How do they know that Einstein was more better than Newton? How? Well, what he described, what he predicted, was more accurate. Stephen frowned. His forehead was damp with sweat. So, there is some, some standard. It's, it's true because it's more accurate. Yes, but it's not perfectly true. Sure, but, but if something else comes along that's better, it will only be better because it's more accurate. Yes. So, there's some standard of truth which you compare the the theory to. Yes. So why not in right and wrong? Because, 
everything every country has their own ideas everyone has have have their own viewpoint so dad said Stephen when you teach people about right and wrong what do you say <laughs> well I can't teach you the whole course today laughed Alder he noticed that his fingers were trembling and clasped them together again and besides it's for university students though you're doing very well I, I, I must say but I'd say that I try to teach people to think critically about ethical issues and to try to understand that there are no hard and fast answers and there are a lot of opinions about things that are hard to put put together so nothing is for certain in right and wrong no 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 we all want there to be I mean wouldn't life be great if there were but there aren't Alice frowned so you just teach your opinion of what might be right or wrong under some some sometimes not quite are you sure you're not thirsty okay okay said Stephen raising his hands and closing his eyes so there aren't any clear answers no and of course you're a little too young to know this this is this is supposed to come later a sort of electric current ran through the cold room Stephen lifted his hands to his mouth so we have been lied to Alder blinked and suddenly felt the chill what 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 Stephen stared at him you never said you never said share sometimes and sometimes don't you never said don't lie unless you're saying something nice if I hit someone you never said I'm sure you have a good reason if I stole something you never said it's okay sometimes you told me there was right and wrong you never said it was just your opinion well it's too complicated for children cried Alder the cold slithering down his spine there are no answers for certain dad said Stephen softly now I want to say why I am on strike Alder stared at him his eyes wide awaiting a sentence dad I think you are pretending to teach something you do not understand Alder's eyes narrowed the three children sat staring at him and he felt his heart contract into a tiny tiny point of darkness <laughs>